This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we talked to State Health Director Libby Char. There is a huge effort underway to make access to the COVID-19 vaccines available to those who have not yet stepped up to get vaccinated. Whether it be the one-dose Johnson & Johnson or the two-dose Moderna or Pfizer shots, healthcare officials have partnered with others in the community to try and make it easy. If we can get closer to the 70% threshold, even more COVID restrictions may be eased. Here's Dr. Libby Char. With regards to the vaccination right now, we are 57% of our population in the state of Hawaii is fully vaccinated. And that is just terrific. And everybody has eyes on 60% because when we get there, there will be some other changes um, that will sort of open things up and give us a little bit more liberty. That being said, we're watching the vaccination carefully and we are absolutely doing our best to focus our, our vaccination, both to just get the entire population, you know, as many people as we can vaccinated and make it easy for them to get vaccinated and also to look at those areas where we may see some health inequities or some disparities and, and try and really focus our efforts there to provide a lot of education and access, um, just really trying to do outreach there so that we can get the vaccine to where, where it needs to be so that people have that opportunity to get vaccinated. We're going to see then a big push over the next week to try and reach out to people to help us get to 60 and help protect our community. Yeah, we have over 300, maybe 400 um, opportunities for people to get vaccinated now all across the state. And we're trying to be really creative in what we're doing. So, for example, this weekend, there's something at the zoo, something at Waimanalo Elementary and Intermediate School that's open to the public. And we're just very grateful to all the community partners and the healthcare systems that have really stepped up to help. Kapole inline skating is doing something, uh, UH Athletics, the, you know, the swap meet. Across the Big Island, they're having vaccination sites in Pahala and Kona. They're doing something at the Pride, Pride Festival in Bay Clinic in Hilo and at the Konohongaji Mission, I mean, just all over the state. And so, again, we're just very grateful to the partners to help us really push vaccine out there and make it easy for people to get vaccinated. And you released the zip codes were, were kind of lagging, where we really need to step up and get more people vaccinated. I, you know, I, you mentioned Kapolei. I was out there, I think it was last weekend. I saw some people holding signs saying, you know, take off your mask no vaccine passport, my body, my choice. I mean, how do you get through to those people, to that crowd? I mean, I don't know. Are the incentives working? So I, I think it's good to remind people, I mean, vaccine really is a very personal choice. And we just want to make sure that we're providing good, valid, scientific-based education upon which people are making their decisions. So if decisions are being made using faulty information or misinformation, that's that's what we'd like to dispel. But but ultimately, it's people's choice, and we're just trying to make sure that we provide really sound information upon which they can base those decisions. The amazing thing is we know this vaccine works. You know, we've seen clusters and outbreaks, and you get a dozen people that, that all get, you know, they're all close contact. They all end up in quarantine, and some of them get sick from this. And the two people in that group, they, they walk away from it. They're not in quarantine, and they did not get sick. And we're just seeing it time and again where, you know, Everybody who gets infected, we ask them, have you been vaccinated? And almost entirely the answer is no. And we're seeing people hospitalized. And when we're checking with them, almost every one of them say, nope, haven't been vaccinated or haven't been fully vaccinated. And so we know that this vaccine works. I think that's the amazing thing. And, and a lot of the times the answers that we're getting back are, Look, if I knew I would have gotten vaccinated, I didn't know. And so that's that's our job to make sure that people do know that and that that information is out there and they can base their decisions to get vaccinated or not on sound education and sound science. So the vaccine is available that we hope that we wouldn't see any fatalities. And we, we have seen the hospitalization rate fall uh, since everybody has, has uh, you know, signed up to go get their shots. But you just worry that those deaths just could have been prevented. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the... The other highlight, you know, is just so the total number of hospitalizations definitely has come down and the total number of you know, people dying from this pandemic has come down as we've seen vaccinations increase. But we still do have people that are dying. And some of those cases are just heartbreaking, you know, where, where somebody gets infected and transmits it to a family member and then the family member has a bad outcome. And I think that's just a really good reminder and incentive for all of us to, to keep up the fight and, and make sure that we're 
getting the education out there and that we're making vaccine available for people. These vaccines work. It's amazing how effective they are and that they really are working. That's that's what we're seeing time and again. You know, the infection rate that we have that's been continuing is in people who haven't been vaccinated. With the news about the Delta variant spreading in, in our community, though, I worry for the keiki. We rallied uh, as a community when a lot of our seniors, you know, uh, started to die in the nursing homes, and we stepped things up there. But I worry for the the little children who some, you know, maybe heading back to school, some who are already in school and who yet have not been approved for any of these vaccines. The vaccine right now is, is approved for 12 and older. And you're exactly right. It's not yet approved for those who are you know, in elementary school, although we are hopeful that the approval will come within the next, I don't know, few months um, to be able to vaccinate the younger population. The best thing that we can do to protect our kids is to get vaccinated. Because if the rest of the household is protected, um, that will protect the children from getting vaccinated, you know, from, from their parents or from their siblings, their older siblings. And so we really protect each other and protect our community. And since those kids are not yet eligible, the best we can do is to have everybody around them be vaccinated. That will protect those kids who are not yet eligible for vaccines. How are you folks weighing some of the, the misinformation out there? I mean, I know there, there was some concern because the, there was some discrepancy with the numbers that CDC had for Hawaii. That's a great question. We have worked very, very closely with the CDC, and our epidemiologists and data analytic folks have been meeting with the CDC and for a while, almost on a daily basis to really go over that data and, and try and fine-tune where the discrepancies are. CDC has said publicly that our data is more accurate than theirs at this point, and they think that they are attributing some of the doses to first doses when they should be second doses, and they are also thinking that there may be a little bit of double counting on the part of the CDC. And so they are saying that our data is, is more accurate. They also said that it's very difficult for them to go back and change their numbers or to amend the way that they're posting. And so I think there will likely continue to be a bit of a discrepancy, and that's why we are using our state numbers. But we absolutely have contacts with them and speak to them almost on a daily basis. So we're using the state numbers right now. We know those are accurate. We know that we can back them up, and the CDC is absolutely fine with that. Is there any, I don't know, hiccup with the military's numbers? So the issue with a lot of the federal doses, both through the federal retail pharmacy program and through the military department of defense and VA is that we get aggregate numbers from them, but we don't get specific line item data. And so it makes it a little bit challenging. So we know our state numbers are accurate, but when you try and break it down to county levels or to age groups, um, it gets a little bit fuzzier there. And so we absolutely have that data for doses that were administered in our jurisdiction. But when we add some of those federal numbers in, we only see the aggregate number and not the line item. So if you notice on our website, when we do the breakdown by counties and age and race and whatnot, there's a disclaimer there that it's only pertaining to certain doses and not the entire number of doses that have been administered in the state. Overall, from the Department of Health side, we're really focused on making sure that we are doing outreach and access and education. And so we are going to those areas that seem to have a little bit lower vaccination rates. And really, I mean, we're taking... You know, we've translated material into about 12 languages. We take people who are part of those communities and, and those cultures who have language proficiency there to help have conversations with the citizens who live within those zip codes and, and to really make sure, again, that, that we're providing good information for them. And then to do clinics there so that it's very, very easy for them. It's, it's, it's right there. If you want to get vaccinated, it's just, you know, walk outside your door and it's, it's right there for you. So just really trying to provide that access and that education. And, and that's what we're doing through our outreach. And, and that will continue as long as we need to do it. That was State Health Director Dr. Libby Char urging people to take the step to get vaccinated as we get into this final stretch to get COVID-19 under control and get our economy going again. We'll have links to the upcoming uh, clinics across the state on our website later today.
It's now time for our reality check. Our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat have a story about the growing pains of green energy. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. So we're talking windmills, right? Yes, we're talking windmills, um, and we're talking about a, a city council proposal uh, here in Honolulu to uh, change the setback requirements for windmills. In other words, how close uh, can a windmill be to another property? Uh, the city council has, has three bills it's looking at, one a 1,500-foot setback, one a setback of 1.25 miles, and one five miles, which is quite big. Um, so that's what they're looking at. Uh, and what we really looked at in the story is the question of why. Why are they, why are they considering this? And uh, it might not come as any surprise to people that one of the things that, that really prompted this was the Kahuku Wind Farm, the Napua Makani Wind Farm developed by AES, which was the subject of a lot of protests last year and um, arrests and so forth. Yes, and those wind turbines, you know, I was out in the North Shore recently, and and it, it does kind of take you back. It's just, you know, you as you come around the corner and you, you see how big these things are. Yeah, and I think that that's the issue, according to uh, the city council member out there who represents the area, Heidi Suniyoshi, she said, look, you know, these things are really, really close to the community. There were already 12 uh, windmills uh, in the area already. Uh, this project added eight more, and some of these are really right on top of the community uh, towering over the school, for instance. If you, one of the community activists took us there and we stood in the schoolyard and uh, the playground, and it was it really striking how close and big uh, th these windmills are. Right. I mean, you say that's what, it's like as tall as a 40-story building. That's pretty big for yes. a hookah. Yeah. I mean, it's as big as, I think, some of the bigger downtown buildings here. Well, okay, so so we've got these bills uh, in front of the council, and I know there's been lots of talk about, look, we need to do better because there was a lot of pushback in the community. You know, didn't feel like they were really heard. Right, and that's what was pretty stunning to me about this. I mean, even the state energy office, uh, if, if you look at their testimony, and I did speak to them and co co corroborated that their testimony is you know, pretty accurate and have an understanding of it. Uh, the state energy office, which is in charge of ushering along all these new development projects, s says in its testimony to the city council, go out there and talk to the people of Kahuku about this. Um, as you're considering which of these bills you're going to adopt, um, really talk to people and see what's going on out there, which is their way of saying, I think, uh, yeah, we need to con really reconsider if this is what we want. Right. We need to do better. Yes, we need to do better. And I, I know your article talked about how th there were some concerns because I think it was on Maui, right? The one of the blades fell off or something. <laughs> well, right. It did happen. There was an accident. And, you know, I, we didn't really get into a question of risk assessment and how uh, likely it is for something like that to happen. But at the same time, I think you can understand why people would be concerned about that. They, they see a report of that happening, um, and they see that this windmill is r practically on top of the school. So the thought of one of these things falling off and bouncing uh, 1,500 feet doesn't seem out of the realm of, of possibility if, if there is an accident, and where does it go in, into the school? And these things are giant. Right. Uh, but the issue is, you know, we've got these green energy goals and the deadline looming, self-imposed deadline. Um, but, you know, it is, you know, you've got to give, I guess, the communities time to process some of these projects because they are large, whether they're solar uh, projects or, uh, or wind turbines. I think that's exactly right, Catherine. That seems to be the message here. And, and that's where this is. That's where this is heading. All right. Um, okay. And then uh, I know we'll we'll probably be hearing uh, much more about this with the various projects that are being proposed across the state. But uh, thanks, Stuart. Thank you. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. To read his full story, visit civilbeat.org.
support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii following health guidelines, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants and bars in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. RubyTuesdayHawaii.com. If you already use your smartphone or iPad to wake up in the morning, you can wake up to Morning Edition on Hawaii Public Radio. You can tune into either of our two stations first thing in the morning, all day long, and with our sleep timer, you can even fall asleep to HPR. Plus, you can see playlists, listen to interviews, and see the program schedule too. Download our app for iPhone, iPad, or Android, and stay connected with HPR. Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. ProService.com slash HR experts or by calling 808-207-7634. Arachnophobics, this next story may not be for you. New research out of the Rubinoff Lab at the University of Hawaii at Manoa is taking a look at all the crawly critters on top of Mauna Kea and what's on the menu in this extreme environment. Grad student Brad Ryle is heading up the project, supervised by UH entomologist Dan Rubinoff. The conversation Savannah Harriman spoke with both of them. Brad starts us off. My project is more of a, an ecology conservation sort of project. So I work in the subalpine where you still have some vegetation all the way up to the, the alpine, the summit of the volcano where there is no vegetation, but resources are still deposited into that habitat through the wind, right? So the wind carries up various different trapped insects and plant material. Like I said, the goal of the project is to, to reconstruct these food webs, essentially this schematic or blueprint as to how the different species that live in the subalpine and alpine habitats of Mauna Kea interact with each other, more broadly above the inversion layer. So that's above around 8,000 or so feet. I'm primarily focusing on arthropods and how different arthropods are interacting with each other. And so what I'm collecting is the full breadth of arthropod diversity that I can get my hands on. So any uh, spiders, centipedes, beetles, insects of all kinds, that I can find both endemic and introduced. A few of them may look familiar. So there's, there's kinds of two different types of critters you'll find up there. You'll find resident species that actually live up there. And then there are those species that are brought up involuntarily on the wind currents. And those would be things that we're more familiar with from the lower elevations, flies, beetles, ladybugs, different wasps and things like that. In the Alpine, actually living there and residing there, we have a few different species. One of them is the vecu bug, and that is a small seed feeding insect. But there are also things like spiders and caterpillars that live up there, which probably look like other spiders and, and caterpillars that people are familiar with. But again, these are species that have adapted to living in that very harsh environment. So some of their internal physiology and behaviors are very different to some of their relatives that might live at lower elevations. And you talked about species, flies, ladybugs that get blown up and are brought involuntarily to that elevation. Are there any invasive species that have colonized that region? I think this is one of the things that I'm looking a little bit more into. There are certainly records of a few different types of, of spiders that are introduced that probably do maintain some sort of steady population in the alpine system. Although based on my collection, they seem to be less frequent. There are some areas where there are exceptions. For instance, around Lake Waiau, which is a high elevation lake, it has a very different set of, of conditions and hydrology compared to the other areas on the, uh, the summit. Um, and so there are some introduced species which do live up there, certain beetles, uh, for instance, which do appear to complete their full life cycle and would be, you know, established. I, I would just add one of the most remarkable things about the system Brad's working in is that it's, it's called an Aeolian system, which he's kind of referenced, but it may be one of the only ones on the planet where all the food coming into that system is blown in on the wind, whereas in virtually every other situation on the planet, food is generated by the plants that grow there. 
And in this ecosystem, because it's so harsh, it's so dry, it's so cold and high elevation, the plants really aren't the significant producers. And so instead, having the trade winds scoop up insects in the tropics down below and blow them up there where they're immobilized by the cold and they literally drop out as an, what we call an aeolian rain, a rain of little bugs that lands all over this harsh ecosystem and then provides the food for the insects that are specially adapted to handling that harshness. So it's a really special system that to my knowledge doesn't occur anywhere else. And, and that's what makes it particularly interesting and particularly worth preserving, which I think is you know important to keep in mind. This is a new system. We don't know how this kind of system works. And so that's the investigation Brad's leading. And Brad, I understand you're still collecting samples. You still have mm -hmm. this wealth of data that you need to parse through and to truly understand it. But are there, I know I'm asking scientists this question, but are there implications <laughs> that you might expect from the samples that you've already collected that you can share? Uh, so when it comes to the subalpine, one of the focuses is really on how introduced species have kind of infiltrated and are destabilizing perhaps the native food web. So there are a number of uh, introduced spiders, for instance, which spiders are not insects, but they are arthropods. We are finding that some of these spiders have the DNA, the barcodes for native species in their gut contents. The implication there being that they are feeding on native species. And we're gonna to wanna to look a little bit more uh, into how those species are situated within that broader food web structure to see kind of what sorts of impacts they might be having and if they are of concern and, and something that we want to address, you know, putting effort into say their eradication or their removal from that system. And the alpine, again, most of the, the resident species that I'm looking at are endemic, which is nice. And what we're really looking for is uh, how are they using that aeolian resource that Dan was mentioning? Are they all feeding on the same things? Are they selecting for different species from among the buffet of species that is provided to them by that aeolian dropout. Um, how are, say, juvenile vecubugs, uh, what are they feeding on compared to adult vecubugs? And these all have different implications for how we manage that system. For instance, if juvenile vecubugs are feeding on a, a different selection of species that are blown up there, and there were land use changes other changes to the surrounding lowland habitat where that food resource originates, then that could have implications for uh, how the overall survival of, say, the juvenile vacuum bugs, which would have broader implications for the, the populations as a whole. Yeah, I would just add, you know, the bottom line question we're trying to figure out is what's going on, who's eating who on the mountain, and what is the impact of invasive species on the native ecosystem. So are the native spiders getting hammered by the invasive spiders? Are the native beetles getting hammered by the invasive beetles? And the results we get from that, if the indications are that invasive species are putting a lot of pressure on the native species up there, that's important for us to understand. And as Brad says, to start looking at ways to mitigate that and trying to manage and preserve the Monacay ecosystem as a whole. And it's one of the few ecosystems which is dominated by insects almost all the way up. There are relatively few vertebrates of any importance, frankly. There aren't any other things, so it becomes really all about the bugs. And we rarely get to say that. You know, almost anywhere else, not just in Hawaii, but in the world, the first thing people want to know about is the whales. The second is the pretty birds. If you deign to talk about insects, it's the butterflies. And you're never talking about the little grubby things that live under rocks and things like that. But because those aren't up on Mauna Kea, we have the chance to understand the system from the ground up. Very importantly, we're trying to save what's native to Mauna Kea, and this is the first step in doing that. Just because I'm going to be um, thinking about it every day for the rest of my life, um, <laughs> how many spiders would you say that there are on the summit of Mauna Kea? <laughs> How many spiders uh, live there, or are there just in general the gross number of, of the spiders? The gross number of spiders. Do I need to be looking for them? You're a fan? Not um, so much. I am trying to be more critter inclusive uh, and be more respectful towards, towards all the species in Hawaii. However, I like to know where they are and I like to be prepared. <laughs> 
spiders are, are extremely prolific. They're all over the place. There's probably more of them around than you think. Uh, and that also includes the summit of Mauna Kea. So the, the spiders that are up there, the uh, endemic uh, lycosid um, spiders are wolf spiders. Uh, so they're pretty large. Uh, they don't do a lot of web weaving. They more so run around on the ground and kind of, again, jump on those uh, dead and dying insects that the wind blows up. Um, and they can be fairly large. And so when I'm walking around up there, I do see them running around fairly frequently. Um, they, they're up there, but they're, they're, they're an endemic species. They're supposed to be up there and they're doing, uh, all spiders are doing us a service by eating some of those insects that are more likely to, to annoy us or, you know, they have, they, they have their, their part to play in, in the food webs all around us. So I, I would add just like, to appreciate how harsh the climate is up at the top of Mauna Kea. You know, it, it can fall below freezing almost any night of the year. The, the solar radiation is extreme. It's very dry most of the time. It's a really hard place to live. And even if you don't like creepy crawlies like spiders, you got to respect the evolutionary accomplishment they've made to survive in such a harsh environment. And, and the fact that that's the only place they live is just a, you know, even if you don't like them, you got to give them a tip of the hat. That was University of Hawaii professor Dan Rubinoff and graduate student Brad Ryle talking about a new project that aims to map the food web atop Mauna Kea. We'll be on the lookout for the project's findings. But if there's one takeaway from today's conversation, it's this. Spiders are everywhere. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch and Sunday brunch at the Homa Cafe, along with evening bar service on Fridays and Saturdays. Details at honolulumuseum.org. Aloha, this is Jose Fajardo, President and General Manager of Hawaii Public Radio, with a special message, especially to those who live on neighbor islands. I'd like to personally invite you to consider applying for HPR's Community Advisory Board. Over the last few years, the contributions of this advisory board have been very vital, and we're looking for more community perspectives from around the state. Details are on our website, and the deadline to apply is June 25th. Mahalo. Hawaiian monk seal pup is resting at Keikaiola, the Marine Mammal Center's dedicated hospital for monk seals in Kailua-Kona. The good news is a malnourished pup has a pretty good chance of recovering and being released back into the wild. Michelle Barbieri heads up the Hawaiian monk seal research program at NOAA. The conversations Matt Fairfax spoke with her about the rescue and what more can be done to protect our Hawaiian monk seals. Here's Michelle. There are about 1,400 Hawaiian monk seals today. That population is spread throughout the main and northwestern Hawaiian Islands. The vast majority of the population, around 1,100 Hawaiian monk seals, primarily resides in Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument in the, marine, in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And then about 300 monk seals or so live in the main Hawaiian Islands. This morning we saw that the Marine Mammal Center in Kailua-Kona just admitted a malnourished young monk seal, I believe it was a pup, from Papa Hanao Mokuakea Marine National Monument. I saw you put out a statement about kind of the, the girth of the young monk seal pup. What happened with that seal rescue in the Big Island there? It sounded like it was a clean rescue. Yes, yes, they did. And, and that is a testament to all of the partners that were involved um, from um, the Marine Mammal Center being willing and able to assist in receiving that patient as well as the United States Coast Guard for providing the transport and United States Fish and Wildlife Service for um, facilitating the capture and holding of the pup until the plane could get there and accommodating all of the logistical complexities that come along with um, with doing those kinds of um, long distance transports. So we're really, really grateful to all of our partners for giving that seal a second chance. 
with the size that she was measured at after she was weaned from her mom, um, she, she really had um, little to no chance of survival without any intervention. It's kind of a basic question, but are humans contributing to habitat loss of the Hawaiian monk seals? Well, um, the loss of terrestrial habitat is a substantial issue that we are really concerned about in Papahanaumokuakea in the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands. Um, that's an area where there are mostly low-lying atolls, and many of those little islands are sandy and fewer than six or seven feet above sea level. Um, so that means that they're quite vulnerable to beach loss, whether that be from storm erosion or sea level rise, and that um, in particular, significant habitat loss um, at Lalo, at French Frigate Shoals, is, um, is something that we're monitoring very closely. There have been islands such as Whalesgate and Trigg that have completely gone underwater, and they were previously really important pupping sites for Hawaiian monk seals who need that terrestrial habitat to give birth and to nurse their young. And with the disappearance of those islands already occurring and sea level rise occurring over the longer term, um, it is a concern that that may ultimately threaten a really important site and oftentimes, I think when we read about Hawaiian monk seal stories or see Hawaiian monk seal coverage, we as humans can often feel helpless sometimes in regards to efforts to kind of save them. What would you say that humans can do to, I guess, help restore Hawaiian monk seal populations? There are actually quite a few things that people can do to help. So one of those is uh, if you see a monk seal hauled out on the beach, it's resting and it needs that rest and it needs that space. Even if you have good intentions, monk seals don't know that. So it's really, really important to give seals space. And that is both from the human standpoint and also, for example, keeping dogs on leash. There have been situations where dogs have um, been a substantial concern in inflicting injuries and even killing monk seals that are young. Um, so keeping dogs on leash as well as giving seals space, um, lots of space, is, is one of the most important things that people can do here in the Maine Hawaiian Islands. Another thing is responsible fishing practices. Um, fishing is really, really important, and there are ways that people can still fish, but also fish responsibly, and that includes monitoring your gear. Um, if a seal is near, reeling in your line until the seal passes. Um, avoiding giving seals any of your catch or bait or anything like that. Fishing with barbless circle hooks, and also if an interaction occurs, reporting that. Um, our team is really well equipped to respond to fishing interactions, and if we hear about them soon, we can sometimes really hone in on which seal that might be, um, work with our partners to go find that seal, and hopefully mitigate that threat before it causes too much damage. And we know that Waikiki, when Loli'i was kind of garnering all that media attention, was one of the places where there was probably um, some concern about human contact with Hawaiian monk seals. I was wondering, do you guys have any other specific areas um, in the Hawaiian Islands where there could be potential concern about contact between Hawaiian monk seals and humans? That's a really good question. Um, you know, the, the decision to move Loli'i was mitigating that more immediate risk in the area that he was born of him becoming dangerously conditioned to humans. He's still going to be at risk for many of the common threats to monk seals that exist here in the main Hawaiian Islands, like fisheries interactions, such as lane net entanglement or hook ingestion, as well as toxoplasmosis. And so I think the, the challenges that um, Loli'i will continue to face are, are similar to that of a lot of other Hawaiian monk seals, regardless of where they're born. The, the community can help, um, again, by fishing responsibly, keeping cats indoors and giving seals space. And if we identify areas where we think that that more immediate risk of being close to people is a concern, then we're going to evaluate those on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, but there really are many challenges to being a monk seal here, regardless of where they are. And, and there's no one single place that, that is free of all of those. So it certainly takes a, a village. And we really do need the community to help us um, create as much space uh, for coexistence um, peacefully between people and seals as we can. We talked about how not just in the last few years, but in the last few months, there have been issues with humans harming and even in some cases humans killing Hawaiian monk seals. How do you think, I know this is a tough question to answer, but how do you think we can 
help alleviate this issue? Do you think it's an educational issue? Do you think there needs to be harsher punishments? Just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. That's a really tough question for sure. Um, you know, I, I think that broad inclusion of communities and enhanced engagement, um, especially from the non-government sector and Monksdale Conservation is gonna help us move towards something sustainable for uh, coexistence and respectful behavior around seals on the beach. And that, that really is, um, I think, the way that NOAA as a whole, um, that, that moving forward, monk seals are one of NOAA's species in the spotlight and part of the action plan for 2021 to 2025 is for NOAA to work on developing a consortium of partners to mitigate some of these top threats. And that includes um, targeted engagement strategies to, to really integrate and work with communities to help increase reporting and care for monk seals and, and help people see themselves in, in monk seal conservation. So I think it is that broad inclusivity that is really the best way for us to um, to plug into that and hopefully reduce some of those threats to seals. And I know you're part of the monk seal research team. I was just wondering, is there any cool stories, any cool points in the data set you guys collecting, anything that we perhaps we haven't been covering that you thought or you think would be interesting for any listeners out there to to digest or to hear about? Well, I will say that the most exciting thing for us, especially um, considering that 2020 was a year where we weren't able to do our normal research operations, um, we are getting ready to deploy our field teams to the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands in um, early July. And we will have uh, a story map and a variety of products coming out that, that will share that story. Um, it's a pretty special place to go and it's a really um, meaningful part of all of the population assessment science that we do, as well as all of the interventions. And so chances are we're gonna have some pretty interesting stories by the end of that, because monksillas always find a way to get themselves into different predicaments. And so the, the mitigations and interventions that will happen this summer will, will probably give us a lot more to tell all right, Michelle, is there anything else you would like to touch on about Hawaiian monk seals, maybe what you're doing in your position right now, anything to be on the lookout for in the future? Um, I realized when you asked the question about what can people do that there was one thing that I skipped over. Um, so can I add to that real quick? Of course. One thing that people can do that seems like a far-fetched disconnect between seals that live in the water um, but cats indoors is really important. And so keeping cats indoors helps prevent them from um, spreading a dangerous parasite in their feces and, and contaminating the environment with that. And it's a parasite called Toxoplasma gondii. And it is something that is lethal and has killed quite a few seals um, over the last several years. And um, not only does that action benefit monk seals, but keeping cats indoors helps to prevent them from killing other native wildlife, like our precious native birds. So um, keeping cats indoors is, is greatly encouraged and really helpful for conserving a lot of our native wildlife. That was Michelle Barbieri, lead scientist of the Hawaiian Monk Seal Research Program at NOAA, talking about protecting our seals. NOAA will head up to the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands in early July to collect uh, more monk seal data. Support for HPR comes from Renewable Energy Services in Honoka'a. Since 1992, supporting Hawaii with solar energy solutions, providing new installations and system management and repair. More by searching Renewable Energy Services Big Island. 
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Linda Graham, author of Bouncing Back. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about rewiring your brain for resilience and well-being. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminal improvements to serve the needs of Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. The city just wrapped up community outreach meetings to talk about a plan to better manage our stormwater runoff. It includes the creation of a new entity, a new utility that would assess a fee for property owners. Comments are being solicited until the end of June. With that in mind, we throw the spotlight on an innovative program that we featured earlier this year. It involved Waipahu High School students and the University of Hawaii's uh, engineering students. They started out by asking, where does the water go when it rains? They ended up helping to create new software to help schools, businesses, and homeowners determine how to best manage their footprint. We hear from Mark Osmond from Data House, who, along with Belt Collins, worked with the students on this challenge. We also hear from Waipahu High School uh, student Tamlin Horiuchi and Si Ching Wong from the UH Engineering School. This is the Community Innovation Mentorship Program. And this is the second year in, in a row that we, we run this, this program. And it's Hawaii-based. And the core of this program is really to bring a, a lot of community partners together and to create some value for Hawaii. And so this year was probably the most complex compared to last year because we had three different teams. We had a team of high school students from Waipahu High School, and we also had a school of engineering from University of Hawaii, Manoa. And then obviously we had the private sector as well. So it was a great program. Uh, we were able to deliver a working prototype, um, which was focused on the stormwater utility initiative that's being discussed currently by the city and county of, of Honolulu. So there was a, a lot of different engineering components that were, had to be discussed. So that's what makes this, this year so complex, is that with this program, the idea of coming up with a fee-based software program that will somehow collect data from the ground, essentially, and drive it up to essentially the, the city and county level, is what made this a challenge. And so the School of Engineering, along with the Waipahu High School, actually had to go out in the field, take measurements, and then our technology team um, had to then figure out, well, how do we create an actual product out of this? And this is all to do with the discussions being, you know, being on the way with the Stormwater Utility Initiative. And Tamlin, why don't you jump in here? Because you're a Waipahu High School student, and you got involved. You were the boots on the ground. You were collecting the data. We did a lot of measurements, especially in the parking lots, because they wanted to see if they could implement a design there to help with mitigating where the water runs. And we also had to figure out what buildings had systems that direct where the flow goes, like storm gutters. So we spent a lot of time walking around campus trying to find them and taking measurements of trains that already existed and whether or not they were in good places. And you had the help of a drone, so you were able to kind of get a bird's eye view of the layout of the campus at least. Correct. It also helped us um, find the different drains because if we couldn't find the drains, then that kind of sucks because we can't tell if our actual system is working. And so that was really important being, I guess, the... I guess the eyes, uh, you know, out on that um, on that parcel. I mean, how large is the campus? Do you remember? I think our campus could um, it's bigger than a football field. I think it might be like three football fields in total. But without the drone data, we would have been going in blind, and it would have taken much longer to actually get the measurements. So did you approach it, you know, in a grid fashion, just kind of like start on one end and then just, you know, work your way through? 
Yes. We started from the top of the school. Since our classroom is in the bottom, we figured start at the top and then just work our way down. That way we can end at our classroom and just call it a day. And you were able to get this data, what, pretty quick then? Yep. We finished in about a day, I think, like almost a school day. And then as far as, as assessing the drainage systems and, the and you know, I don't know, did you have to go back out another day and, and, and look at those things? Thankfully, no, because we were able to use ArcGIS to um, determine or simulate rainfall, which helps us figure out where the water will flow. That way we were able to see if the drain points that we are able to find we're in the right place and what places could use more uh, drainage or more systems to better control the flow of water. And then I've gone to some schools where they've got like rain gardens. Do you have anything like that at the Waipaho campus? Not at the moment, but that was one of the possible plans that the civil engineering students wanted to look into for the parking lots. They wanted to try to see if there was enough space to implement tree trenches that way the water from the parking lot could go there rather than into the street and see you're up there at the college of engineering what did you folks do with that data from the waipahu high school students so when we got the data we uh, implement them in into the database and then we would call those data out to create the map and then how are these maps being used those maps are um so you would be able to draw shapes on the building and then area of the shape will determine the charge that um, the school would have to pay. And then I know because of COVID, the plans for this changed somewhat. So were you able to get out there with your team on the campus, or was it just pretty much the Waipahu High Schoolers being the boots on the ground? Yes, they were mostly on the ground. So we were able to meet in office one time. And then Mm -hmm. other than that, we're mostly working online. And so how has this experience helped you? This is very helpful because... We just we didn't just focus on the technology part. We also participate in the planning progress using Agile method and then also Scrum to plan out what we're gonna do. And Mark, you know, t- talk about what happens now with this report that you've compiled. You know, using the data that the students provided. It's really about the the product that we uh, produced and. So right now, you know, to date, the city and county are still in the process of having and holding stakeholder advisory group meetings. And this is to help create that kind of remaining critical input from the communities and so they could prioritize what the final um, elements of this initiative and plan is going to be. So until a lot of those decisions are made, so far what we've done as a, as a program, and this is a quick program, but we were able to actually deliver this working prototype, and this is really going to be the early kind of code base that um, a prototype can later on build off. We're really kind of waiting for some of the key decisions to be made before more progress can be made. Um, But, you know, all in all, you know, again, like this was a more complex prototype uh, this year because of all the moving parts. So the stormwater utility program is, is quite large and Currently, I think the plan is to actually have the implementation phase rolled out by, I think, 2023. So there's still uh, some work to be done um, on the on the city side as well as uh, a lot of on the community side. Yeah, because I think they're hoping to get that utility established, to get the board established you know, by the end of the year. Exactly. The, the council adoption process, process they want to have done by this year. And with that, there's some, some of the elements that need to be discussed is the development of credits, which is kind of what some of the students' work had done. So as well as understanding what the charge would be, they could also implement a credit-based system to say, based on some of the work that's been done on these certain parcels of properties, that they would actually be eligible for credits. But there's other policies that need to be discussed on the city level, such as hardship policies, grants, rebates, et cetera. Uh, it's a few things still in the works. Okay, so you can't really, but until the, the utility is established and they set like a rate fee for, let's say, schools, um, you don't really know what the fee might be charged for, let's say, Waipahu High School. There's yeah, still correct, some unknowns. Exactly. 
Yeah, and so what the students have done is they actually came up with a, a quick algorithm to say, let's, you know, based on some of the much earlier discussions, we're able to say, well, why don't we base the credit fee on this number? This number hasn't been decided yet, but just to give an example in the prototype of how it would work. So as we mentioned, you can zoom in on this map, which is an incredible map. It's layered with different elements of data. You can actually measure out a portion on your property and essentially figure out if you're going to be able to get a certain amount of credit or a certain fee based on that, you know, that element of your property. And the idea is that you create this prototype and then perhaps the DOE can then use it with all their schools so they're able to plan. Yeah, absolutely. And, and not just the DOE, but anyone yeah, really in Hawaii that's affected by this new uh, stormwater utility. And then with the fees that are collected, it's my understanding that it's going to go into a special fund, right, which really goes for the progress of our water problem for Hawaii. It, it is going to be kind of a revenue-neutral revenue uh, policy. So it's not really taking advantage of anyone. It's actually there to help make, ensure that we're prepared for the future. We've been hearing from Mark Osman from Data House, Si Ching Wong from the UH College of Engineering, and Tamlin Horiuchi from Waipahu High School. To find out more about this stormwater project, we'll have links up on our website later today. That's it for today. Up tomorrow, we plan to hear from Governor David Ige. Got questions for him? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.